This is episode 6 of The Teacher's Pet. Listeners are advised that this episode contains coarse language and adult themes. This podcast series is brought to you by The Australian. Lynette Dawson was reported missing by her husband, former Newtown Jets rugby league star Chris Dawson. He said I was going to get a hitman to kill Lynn and he rang me and said Lynn's gone, she isn't coming back. I just want justice. And I'd love her little girls to know she didn't leave them. See, what's happening is people who are listening to the podcast are actually finding their own voice, people who know things. You know, having been silent for a long time, a lot of people have said, I've been really guilty, I haven't said anything. And they're hearing other people talk about this and then coming forward to me because they do have a great sense that there's been a terrible injustice here. That's wrong. What you said before, that people feel guilty, since that night, that's what I felt. I felt that guilt of I should have told someone, I should have rung the police. So I totally relate to people who are coming forward to you because that's how I felt. And I now feel a lot better. Between episodes of The Teacher's Pet, witnesses to conversations and events are emerging to disclose information that has troubled them. People like Kay, who runs a successful business in Sydney. And my husband said to me, don't you say anything about Lynette. And of course I couldn't help myself. In Kay's case, she's about to disclose a conversation with Chris and Paul Dawson. But this conversation isn't from 1982, when Chris's wife, Lynn, suddenly vanished from the northern beaches, never to be seen again. Kay is recalling a conversation 25 years later, in 2007 when she went to a home in the eastern suburbs of Sydney for a private occasion, a living wake, to honour a good friend, Phil Day. Phil was a highly respected career teacher and a mentor to thousands of high school students. But Phil was dying of cancer. At the gathering in 2007 of many of Phil Day's nearest and dearest, Kay sat down to eat. Sitting directly opposite her was Chris Dawson, she was meeting the unusually close twin brothers for the first time. And I asked him, have you been married before? And he said, yes. And the minute I asked that question, um, Paul sat down next to him. It was unusual. It was like Paul was watching and making sure that Chris didn't say anything. Anyway, so, so I when did you get divorced? And he said, oh, no, she, she joined a commune in the Blue Mountains. And I said really? Did you have any children? And he said, yeah, we had two. I said, what sort of mother would leave their kids? And he said, yeah, well, we don't know. She just joined a commune in the Blue Mountains. It was one of those very unusual things, but I think I was more thrown by the fact that Paul left the people he was with and sat down next to Chris. There was just something, you know how your instinct kicks in? There was just something creepy about it. Kay is an inquisitive executive, and in her business, she's uniquely required to judge hundreds of people. Demeanour, body language, facial expressions, fidgeting, all of these things matter to her. What do you think that Paul knew you and Chris were talking about this? Absolutely. He was sort of standing behind us, and then the minute we got into the marriage before, that's when he sat down. It wasn't like he was part of the conversation. He left where he was and sat down next to Chris. My impression that night, Paul is one that makes sure Chris doesn't say too much. Chris 
was definitely the follower. Paul was the, the dominant twin. Paul was the one who wanted to make sure Chris didn't say anything that was going to come back. The way Paul just came over and sat next to Chris, it wasn't, it wasn't like he sat opposite. He sat right next to him. You know, so their legs were almost together. That's the first time I've heard one or both the brothers say that she's um, definitely gone off with a religious organisation and also offered a location. And he may well say, yeah, look, I just tell people that because I can't bear to discuss the other possibilities, so I just say that to throw them off. Presumably that's what he would say. In my view, the real problem is most likely that Chris Dawson has great trouble telling the truth or just sticking to one consistent version of his own story when it comes to Lynn. The version he told Kay was that Lynn had gone off to a commune in the Blue Mountains, about a 90-minute drive from Bayview. But Chris told police in his own deeply misleading handwritten statement in August 1982 that he last heard from his wife when she telephoned him a week after she vanished. In Chris's long-lost statement, which we'll analyse in detail later in this episode. He makes no mention of the Blue Mountains. Here's what Chris wrote to police in 1982, seven months after the last time he claimed to have heard from Lynn. There was a slight possibility of contact with a religious organisation. Kay told me that their mutual friend, Phil Day, a religious man in the Anglican faith, stood by Chris Dawson. I do remember when you know, we did have him over, to the house. He said, no, I think he's innocent. Kay said that she had firmly believed Lynn was a victim of foul play. And then when I met them, I was just 100% convinced. Lynn's mother, Helena Sims, returned to the family house on the hill above the waves at Clovelly and wrote in her diary. It was the evening of Saturday, January 9, 1982. To Northbridge for swim with girls. Lynn phoned, left home. Chris agitated, said she's on Central Coast. Chanel and Sharon home with me for the night. Phil Day drove us, really shocked. Just the night before, when Helena called Lynn and Chris's house at Bayview to see how her daughter and son-in-law's marriage counselling at Manly had gone that day, Chris answered the phone. And according to Helena, when she recounted it to family and friends in the weeks, months and years afterwards, Chris didn't really want to put Lynn on to talk. Helena pressed until Chris relented. When Lynn came to the phone, she just didn't sound herself. Lynn was slurring her words. And that's why Helena wrote this in her diary on the Friday evening. Lynn and Chris to psychiatrist. Rang Lynn. Sounded half sozzled. Said all was well. Tell Pat, Greg and Phil. Here's Lynn's sister. Pat Jenkins. Um, Mum said to Lynn, you sound sozzled. And Lynn's reply was, oh, my husband's just made me a nice, nice drink. When Mum rang, he was reluctant to put Lynn on the phone. And Mum insisted. So, you know, and that's, you know, when she spoke, she sounded, you know, inebriated. And Lynn wasn't a drinker. Oh, and she also said, tell Pat, Greg and Phil that everything's okay. She thought things were okay, didn't she? Mm. Because I mean, they were holding hands and I, I just think it was him. You know, he had this plan. Show everyone everything's okay. Walk up in front of all the her work, co-workers. We're holding hands. 
it's all working out well. The message comes back to us from Lynn, everything's okay. Yeah, and then next day she's gone. I'm going to quote exactly from Chris Dawson's handwritten statement to police about his wife Lynn's last contacts with him in early 1982. This is a newly discovered statement, and it's notable for the lies and deceptions by omission. We revealed some of these in the previous episode of The Teacher's Pet. Lynn's brothers, Greg and Phil, her sister Pat, and close friends were stunned when they heard about Chris's statement. They want the Director of Public Prosecutions in New South Wales to afford it significant weight in its current review of the police brief of evidence. In August 1982, seven months after Lynn had vanished, Chris wrote this in his statement to police. All girlfriends have been contacted. No success. I've rung women's refuges at Manly and DY, the Salvation Army, and all possible family connections that have not received word from her. I placed an ad in Telegraph to appear on 26 March 1982. Wedding anniversary. Appear day late on 27 March. I rang Royal North Shore Hospital staffing and was informed a sister L. Sims worked in casualty. I drove through and spoke to a doctor I knew. He informed me that the sister Sims didn't fit my wife's description. My father, Mr. Sid Dawson, rang Lifeline, who contacted a Gosford refuge, once again with no success. The next few sentences in Chris's statement revolve around the lies we've previously discussed, such as his omission of any mention of his intense relationship with Joanne Curtis and the fact that this had taken his marriage to the precipice. When Chris described the marital problems to police, he said these were caused by Lynn's credit card spending, not a word about a schoolgirl lover. And Chris also lied with brazen confidence when he wrote that he had travelled north for a few days around Christmas to be by himself. Now, on the second page of Chris's handwritten statement, he wrote this. We both went to a marriage guidance counsellor psychiatrist on Friday 8th January. Everything seemed fine. When I dropped her back at work, we were both in particularly good spirits. We were holding hands and once again felt close. Later that night, she appeared distressed and had difficulty coping with our youngest daughter. Under the heading Saturday 9th January, which was the day after the marriage counselling, Chris wrote this in his handwritten statement. She seemed happy and had decided to go to the markets and meet me and the girls back at Northbridge Baths after 12. I dropped her off at Mona Vale. Everything seemed fine. Lynn rang the baths about 3pm. She said she was with friends, not to worry. It was her turn and that she'd ring later that week. She rang the following Saturday and said she needed more time and wouldn't return home until she felt happy to do so. Prior to Christmas, Lynn had opened her own bank account and bank card. Statements for January show she made purchases at Katie's Narrabeen on 12 January 1982, and in February's statement, 27 January 1982, just Jean's Narrabeen. No further statement or payments were made on that account or arrived here. Lynn was reportedly seen at Narrawina, reported to her mother, also at Gosford, by Mrs Sue Butlin. The last contact I had with her was by phone on the 16th of January 1982. There are numerous oddities in this statement, apart from the obvious lies. 
let's step through these carefully. Chris doesn't go into the details in his written statement, but he has told Lynn's family that Lynn got up early on Saturday morning, January 9. Chris said that Lynn had breakfast, made lunches for the family, put on a load of washing and asked Chris to drive her at 7am to a bus stop in Mona Vale, about a 10-minute drive from home. Chris said that after driving her to the bus stop at Mona Vale, he then returned to Bayview. Now, this is odd on a couple of levels. Lynn wasn't an early morning riser. The idea that she'd have done these chores and be dressed to be dropped at a bus stop by 7am, particularly after sounding half-sozzled the night before, makes little sense. Chris has said that Lynn told him she would get a bus from Mona Vale to Chatswood Shopping Centre to return some clothing, and then she'd make her own way to the tidal swimming pool known as Northbridge Baths. This is curious too, because it would have been a lot easier and less time-consuming for Chris to drop Lynn at the shopping centre on his way to the baths, where he worked part-time as a lifeguard. Chris was due there that Saturday, and Lynn and her mother, Helena, had already made a plan to meet at the Baths to talk about hopefully happier events after the sadness of Christmas and the New Year. Helena and Lynn looked forward to a swim there with Chris and the girls, Chanel and Sharon. And here's another odd thing. Chris had asked a really good friend, Phil Day, to come to Northbridge Baths too. Phil was a groomsman at their wedding and Phil had been a witness signatory on their adoption papers when it seemed Lynn couldn't conceive just before she discovered she was pregnant with her baby miracle, Chanel. Chris had told Phil that he was really sorry he hadn't sent him a Christmas card and he wanted to talk to Phil about the marital problems. Phil was liked and respected by Lynn, Chris and their families. He saw the best in people. He was only too happy to drive from his home in Sydney's eastern suburbs on the other side of Sydney Harbour if his presence would help Chris. And it was Chris's idea that Phil turn up. When Helena arrived at the baths that sunny January afternoon and her grandchildren ran to give her a hug, Chris asked her where Lynn was. Phil watched this unfold. Helena was surprised. She thought Lynn was with Chris. Helena recalled that Chris seemed agitated, and that's what she wrote in her diary entry. Chris explained to his mother-in-law that he had dropped Lynn at the Monavale bus stop early that morning. A short time later, as Chris and Helena spoke with Phil Day, Chris was asked to go to the kiosk. He was wanted on the telephone there. He returned after about 10 minutes. He said the caller was Lynn. He said Lynn told him she needed a little time away to think things over. He told Lynn's mother, Helena, and Phil Day that Lynn had said she was with some friends. Chris said she told him she was already on the central coast and not to worry because she would be in touch again. Before Phil Day died a decade ago, he was called as a witness at the second inquest in 2003. This is his evidence. It's not his voice. He said that Lynn had rung to say she was keen to have some time to herself. And would I mind taking Helena Sims and Chanel and Sharon home to the Sims residence at Clavelli? He seemed quite calm about it. I didn't question that because I knew he'd already been away for a few days around Christmas time to do a similar thing. Phil wasn't told anything by Chris about the role and presence of a girl called Joanne Curtis. And this seems strange, as Chris had said to Phil that he wanted to talk to him about the marital problems. 
And I guess we've all gone away to sort ourselves out at various times of failing relationships or with those sorts of problems. The impression I got was that he'd done that and probably it was right that she should do that. Phil didn't know about Joanne for several years, despite the teenager having moved into the Bayview house so soon after Lynn's disappearance. When Phil Day gave his evidence in 2003 at the inquest, he was asked about his subsequent contacts with Chris and how Chris seemed in the years after Lynn's disappearance. Days had turned into months, then years, without a word from Lynn. He was missing Lynn. He wished she'd return or that they'd hear from her. He didn't seem to be at peace with himself in terms of her disappearance. I think he very much longed for her in terms that the two girls could see her, and I think there was remorse in his actions. Helena was alarmed at the pool that Saturday, January 9, 1982, because it wasn't like Lynn to break an appointment to meet her mother. A trip to the Central Coast for a few days or more would have required clothing and a plan. Lynn wouldn't have put her 65-year-old mother, who didn't drive, to all the needless trouble of crossing the harbour to get to Northbridge Baths for a planned afternoon with Lynn if Lynn already knew that she wasn't going to be there. And it was only the night before that Lynn had confirmed the plan to meet at the swimming pool. Lynn was very thoughtful. She was deep into the planning for a surprise birthday party at Bayview in February for her mother. And when Helena spoke to Lynn the night before, she was positive. Lynn said the counselling went really well. The marriage was back on track. Why would Lynn leave for a few days and not let her mother or anyone else know? Lynn had spent three days at the family home where she grew up, in Clovelly, with her mother and her father, Len, over the New Year period, when Chris was still angry with her. And this was in the days before the marriage counselling. Since Chris had walked out at Christmas time, Lynn had been talking to her mother about the challenges in the marriage. She just wasn't telling Helena how she kept getting bruised. She didn't want Helena to think too badly of her other golden-haired boy, Chris. I've considered many things that supposedly occurred on that day, Saturday, January 9. First of all, if Chris did actually murder Lynn between Friday night and early Saturday morning, why did he come up with the story about driving her to the bus stop at Mona Vale at 7am? I think it's quite possible that Chris went out in his car that Saturday morning, but most likely for a sinister reason somehow related to Lynn's probable fate and that he needed to have a plausible explanation for this trip, just in case someone saw him driving that morning and it became known to police. I agree with the two coroners that by this time, Lynn was already dead, and that as part of his premeditated plan, Chris lied when he said Lynn telephoned the kiosk. But did someone actually call him there? It's probable that a female did telephone the kiosk at Northbridge Baths, and that the summoning of Chris to take the call was genuine. It's actually still the same to this day. People would ring in and if they left something or, you know. The baths were a special place for Maya Sydney and her friends at the time Lynn Dawson disappeared. So very simple, like any any swimming pool of the day, you know, anywhere in Australia really. It was a counter and you could hang out and talk and gas bag. All of us would hang down there all summer long. Maya and her friends would often help out in the kiosk. And do you remember Chris or Paul Dawson? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, the, these guys were poster boy material. You know, they were really well-built, blonde, 
football player types, very handsome men, no question, you know, dazzling, dazzling. But he was blonde and shiny, and and the Paul as well. But I think we just saw more of Chris and um, had a real look about him. And friendly. Oh yeah, very friendly. Yeah. Maya and her friends are now exchanging emails, trying to work out who might have answered the kiosk phone one Saturday, 36 years ago. It's a long shot. Chris Dawson had instructed Joanne Curtis to telephone him reverse charge every day from the caravan park at Southwest Rocks, where she was staying with two of her sisters, Nicole and Belinda, and friends. Was Joanne the mystery caller to the kiosk that day? There are no telephone records to establish whether or not this could be right. Phil Day's presence at the pool seems unusual too, at least until a possible ulterior reason for him going is raised, because Phil, always happy to help, had a job to do, although he didn't know it at the time. Phil would see only goodness in his friends, and he had known Chris and Paul Dawson since they were boys. He liked and trusted them. Phil unwittingly became a witness for Chris and a driver. Chris asked his old friend from Sydney Boys High to drive Chris and Lynn's girls, Chanel and Sharon, as well as their nana, Helena, to Helena's house at Clovelly. It was near where Phil lived. Chanel and Sharon had brought no pyjamas or other clothing or toothbrushes to the pool. And that's because until Chris came up with the idea of the girls going to Clovelly that Saturday afternoon, the girls were meant to go back to Bayview with their dad, Chris was on January school break and he wasn't about to go searching for Lynn. As far as Phil was concerned, Chris seemed to be quite accepting of Lynn's purported decision to have a few days away. But Chris did have at least one job to do and he didn't tell Phil about it. According to Joanne and her sisters and friends at Southwest Rocks, Chris arrived the following morning, Sunday, and collected Joanne from the caravan park Joanne has previously described having spoken to Chris the day before when he told her, Lynn's gone and she's not coming back. The credit card transactions which Chris cited in his statement have never been produced to police or anyone else. And the purchases that Chris described at a women's retail clothing shop called Katie's and a Just Jeans shop have never been verified. There's no evidence they occurred. The police didn't bother chasing them up at the time, and there were no records years later. Lynn Dawson couldn't drive, and everyone says if she was going away for a few days, she would never have left her children behind. Why would she flee her family to go to the central coast of New South Wales, then travel somehow all the way back to the northern beaches to buy a couple of items of clothing at Katie's and Just Jeans in Narrabeen? Why would she make such a shopping excursion but not see her daughters, her husband Chris, her friends, her boss and colleagues at work when she wanted to keep her job or her worried mother and father? But Chris's claims about these transactions having supposedly occurred in the days after Lynn vanished must have been persuasive at the time. Lynn would often buy gifts for her daughters and her husband and knickknacks to brighten up the house at Bayview. It used to annoy Chris. It made him angry. Barbara Cruz, Lynn's manager at the childcare centre, recalls asking Lynn about this shortly before she disappeared. When she had the bank card delivered to our, the, the centre's address, 
Because I said to her, why have I got this, your bank card coming to this address? And she said, oh, because Chris doesn't know I've got a bank card and um, I can't have it delivered to the home. So I just think he held the purse strings very tight. Here's another curious thing. Chris Dawson didn't go to police to report his wife as missing for almost six weeks. Remember, his story was that when she telephoned on the Saturday to say she had gone away for a few days, she also told him she would be in touch again soon. He said Lynn telephoned him the next day, and then again a few days later, and she told him, according to Chris, that she needed some more time, and he said that he responded angrily, how much more bloody time do you need? But it's hard to comprehend why Chris would have been urging Lynn to come home, because he had already introduced his girlfriend, Joanne, to Lynn's bed. Lynn's sister, Pat, has told me that it was her mother's pleas to Chris, as Lynn's next of kin, that led him to finally go to police to report her missing. Here's Helena in a diary entry dated Sunday, January 10. Didn't sleep all night. Down bay for swim with Chanel and Sharon. Chris rang. Lynn rang him, not coming home. Chris told Helena that he had urged Lynn to ring her mother. Chris reassured Helena that Lynn said she would call her mother on Wednesday. Helena waited to hear her daughter's voice. Here's Helena's diary entry for Wednesday, January 13. Lynn didn't phone as promised. Upset. By Friday, Lynn had been suspiciously missing for a week. Helena was becoming sick with worry. Lynn rang Chris, can't come home yet. I walked Coogee for two hours. Over the next three weeks, Helena made numerous notes about her calls to Chris and her growing concerns for her absent daughter. Here's her entry for February 1. What a sad birthday. No ring from Lynn. Helena was horrified five days later, Saturday, February 6, when her granddaughters came to stay at Clovelly for the weekend and Chanel innocently told Nana something that cut her very deeply. Rang Chris re-Joanne having been there, said Chanel, using Chris and Lynn's bed. But Joanne had been in that bed since the previous month, since two days after Lynn disappeared. When I went to her place, the kids were really well-dressed in matching little pink dresses and the hair was beautiful. Lynn's deep love for her two daughters was obvious to people who barely knew her, like Kristen Hardiman, a struggling artist when Lynn stopped by her stand at a Northern Beaches Christmas market in 1981. Lynn commissioned Kristen to come to Bayview to photograph Chanel and Sharon and then paint the two girls. She didn't want them specifically for Christmas, so I asked her if uh, early January would be fine and that uh, I went away and uh, did the drawings, yeah. I didn't uh, go back. I phoned um, early January uh, to arrange a time to go back. And uh, when the phone rang and, and was answered by someone, by a man who said it was his her husband, and his, I remember the words really clearly because it was so odd. Um, he said that she'd gone away and didn't want them anymore. And I asked him if he'd like to see them. And uh, he said, no, don't want to see them. Uh, And I remember it so clearly because she was really excited about having them done. Kristen is a renowned artist these days. 
Her paintings of thoroughbreds, including the mighty champion, Winks, are highly sought after. Kristen has given a statement to the police detective, Damien Loon. He was very interested because he said that it was physical evidence of the fact that Lynette loved her children and had no intentions of leaving them. Chris Dawson went to Mona Vale Police Station on February 18 to report Lynn missing. At 9.15am that day, according to a document that wasn't lost when Lynn's file went missing, Chris reported to Sergeant Gibbons that he had dropped his wife at 7am at Mona Vale on Saturday, January 9, and later that day she had called him stating she wanted some time on the Central Coast to sort things out. Sergeant Gibbons put it in the missing persons book. It's entry number H08826. An internal police briefing note made three years later stated that Chris was of the opinion she may have gone to a religious group on the North Coast. The briefing note adds that Chris was contacted by police a couple of days after he reported her missing, and several times through March, but he had no news. The briefing note says police patrols were made of the area without success. None of Lynn's neighbours, friends or colleagues were contacted by police. Chris was friends with a number of police he knew well through football, including cops who were strong backers of the Belrose Club on the Northern Beaches. Chris and Paul Dawson shared the captaincy and coaching duties. For Helena, any possible sighting of her daughter was something to grip onto. The unreliable wife of one of Chris's footballing mates suggested she had seen Lynn at a market in Gosford and Lynn had then driven off. But Lynn did not drive, and the woman was known to her own husband and daughter as a fantasist. There have been no confirmed sightings of Lynn Dawson since early January 1982, when she was last seen alive. Chris Dawson's handwritten statement to police in August coincided with one from Helena, and these documents were meant to make up a full profile for the missing persons unit which forwarded the particulars to every police station in New South Wales. Police Inspector Jeff Shattles would later state in an internal memo that nothing in the statements provided by Chris Dawson and his mother-in-law, Helena Sims, led to any suspicion by police of foul play. But this is really remarkable, because even as Chris was lying and omitting incredibly important facts, such as the existence of his intense sexual relationship for 14 months with a schoolgirl now living in the home, Chris did acknowledge to police that he and his wife were having marriage problems. Helena's handwritten statement to police on August 21 should surely have made them deeply suspicious at a time when Helena was still supporting Chris. I've got Helena's letter, and this is what it says in part. As requested, I'm forwarding a statement about the disappearance of my daughter, Lynette Joy Dawson. My daughter had become uptight and very tense over the latter months of last year. She and her husband had struck a bumpy patch in their marriage and partnership of 17 years, complicated by the taking in of a teenage student seeking help. She had babysat for them. My daughter offered her hospitality in good faith which she later regretted when she caused her much anguish. December 22, Chris left Lynn and the two children. She had expected them to pick her up after work, came home after working until 6pm to find a goodbye note and not to paint too black a picture of him to the children, if I remember what Lynn told me correctly. 
He came home on Boxing Day and followed two rather tense weeks, I understand, a visit to a psychologist January 8, which relaxed them somewhat. The baby was disturbed during that night and Lynn broke down, so Chris told me, took herself into a bed in the study where I guess she stewed in her misery. Chris said she woke early, did a load of washing, cut lunches for them to take to the pool, apologised for her breakdown and asked to be driven down to the bus at 7am to Chatswood. She was to come back in time to have lunch with them at the pool. She was wearing shorts and carried three plastic shopping bags, saying she wanted to return some clothing at Chatswood and probably would go on to Paddy's Markets. I arrived at the pool at 2pm to have a swim with them and was met by an agitated Chris wanting to know if Lynn had contacted me. At 3pm he received a telephone call and came back to me and he was visibly affected. It was an STD call from Lynn saying she needed some time to think things out. Was on the central coast with friends, no idea who that could have been, and was all right. That was January 9. Sunday the 10th, Lynn contacted Chris again saying to let Barbara know she would be off a week owing to illness. Chris reminded her to ring me and she said she would contact Chris and myself on Wednesday 13. She came back to the area and purchased an article on the bank card for $16. I guess a cardigan as she had nothing with her. Wednesday 13, I waited in all day for her call, which didn't eventuate. Chris's didn't either. Friday 15, I had a call from Chris around tea time saying that he had had a call from Lynn. He couldn't recall if there had been pips, but he said she'd been north and needed more time. He got annoyed with her and said, how much more bloody time do you need? He asked her not to hang up, as she said she wouldn't come home if he spoke like that. Chris said to ring your mum. She said she would when she felt she could. He asked her to come home. He said we all needed her. She said, I can't. That was the last time we had contact with her. Here's Helena's other daughter, Pat. I asked her whether her mother was in denial over Lynn's probable fate back then. Oh, absolutely. Mum said to me one time, oh, Lynn might have gone back to the house, seen Joanne was there, and so left. So Mum still had Lynn alive. I mean, this is why Mum wrote to the police in all the different states, to New Zealand, to all the major hospitals. She wrote to Salvation Army, um, you know, trying to search for Lynn. She'd go across the Manny Ferry and she'd scan the faces, seeing if she could see Lynn's face amongst the crowds. Um, Mum just could not comprehend that she'd never see Lynn again. It's hard to believe that a police officer reading Chris's statement and Helena's statement wouldn't see their obvious contradictions. She didn't drink or smoke. Her only vice as such was to wander through shops and spend unwisely at times. She loved her children, her husband and home, the family gatherings, going out as a family. Until recently, I have held my son-in-law in high esteem and got along well with him. But my faith has been shaken when, for all his talk of wanting to look after his two little girls, Lynn goes and he's introduced the teenager back into the home as early as February 6th that I heard of it. 
So if Lynn has been in the vicinity and seen them, in the open together, she has cut herself off from us all totally and completely, and I'm sure she can't be thinking straight. Lynn's family, and particularly her mother Helena, were very trusting, perhaps even naive. I asked Lynn's sister, Pat, about this. Well, what was she to believe, that she'd never see her daughter again, her beloved daughter again? I mean, she, she just couldn't comprehend that. Mum was a simple person, wasn't she? She loved her children, loved her family. Bad things didn't happen to our family. We're just ordinary people. At the comfortable and expensive home Lynn and Chris had built in Bayview, Joanne Curtis was adjusting to being the new woman there in January 1982 and still only 17, a month off her 18th birthday. Paul Dawson's wife, Marilyn, tried to help Joanne rustle up family meals and gave her tips on looking after the girls, Lynn's girls. When Joanne Curtis's mother, Margot, spoke to police years later, she was still insisting that she had not even known her daughter and Chris were in a relationship at the time Joanne replaced Lynn at Bayview. Margot was deceiving only herself. Joanne moved into Gilwinger Drive with Chris. It wasn't long after that she told me that Lynn Dawson had left Chris. This was basically straight after Lynn had disappeared. All I was told from Joanne was that Chris had taken Lynn to the main road in Mona Vale one morning and she never returned. When Joanne moved in with Chris, I thought at the time it was just to look after the two children because Lynn had gone and I assumed Chris needed a hand. It wasn't long after that that I realised there must have been more going on with Chris and Joanne than I knew. It was then that Joanne had taken over the role of mother for these children. Joanne told me that Chris apparently received telephone calls from Lynn. Chris had told Joanne this. That was Margot's evidence, not her voice. In late January 1982, lessons restarted at Cromer High School after the long holiday break. Chris Dawson went back and tried to go on as if nothing had happened. He greeted new classes of Cromer High teenagers who liked his friendly manner. Many of them had heard that his new live-in lover, Joanne, was a former student from the previous year. By then, Lynn had been missing for a fortnight from Bayview. Miss Bush, she was crying and she sat me down in the gym and she was shaking and I can remember her telling me that Lynn had gone missing and, you know, no one had heard from her again and she was... And, I mean, even when I think of that, like, I, I was 15, you know, like, I was this 15-year-old kid... And I've got a school teacher who was crying on my shoulders about this because she was quite good friends with Lynn and she was very good friends with Chris. They were very close. I've been talking to Michelle Walsh, whose surname was Mooney at Cromer High, and she's still on the northern beaches with her husband and children. Joanne was ahead of Michelle at school. They knew each other then and they still have mutual friends. I was a gymnast at the time, so I spent most of my lunch hours in the gym training. Wasn't really ever that close to Chris, but he was always sort of nice to me. Like, if I wanted to go in the gym, he let me in. Leslie Bush, Chris's sports teaching colleague at the school, was alarmed at the bizarre turn of events in early 1982. Her emotional state was just bad. She was shaking, she was crying. Um, basically, what she said to me was that Lynn had, had gone missing and I, she had actually introduced me to Lynn at our end-of-year gym display. And so it was like she was talking to me like I knew her. 
And I didn't really know her. I'd been introduced to her, but I didn't know her. Chris was an introvert who didn't go out of his way to make friends among the teaching staff. But he and Miss Bush, the students called her Bushy, used to get along well. When Joanne was still at the school the previous year, 1981, and spending a lot of her time in the sports office with Chris behind a closed door, they had admitted to Miss Bush they were in love. Leslie Bush had a strong set of values. She was very unhappy with the relationship. She and Chris would argue about him closing the door to have private time with Joanne in the sports office. The deputy principal, Hilton Mace, had warned them to always leave it open, but now at the start of the first term of 1982, things had gone from bad to diabolical. I don't know whether Chris had seen us, or he obviously had seen us, and Bushy talking to me, or, you know, I was sort of trying to console her. And I left later on, and I was walking through the quadrangle at school, and there's sort of like this raised area in the middle of the school with some seats around it right next to the canteen. He was just sitting there, and as I walked past, he called me over. So I went over, and um, he asked me. He just said what he was really wanting to know what Bushy had said to me. I just said, look, she's just really upset, and he just kept wanting to, he started wanting to know what she said to me. And then he told me to keep my mouth shut in a really aggressive, like he just looked at me and said, you keep your mouth shut, and just walked away. And I just... I can remember still standing there, like, looking at him like I didn't even know what I was supposed to keep my mouth shut about. I didn't really see him any other way. He was just like this quiet, sort of hard-working teacher. Um, and uh, so when he sort of spoke to me in that really, sort of that tone, I was really shocked. I, he never spoke to me again. I never went near him again. And then the next thing I knew, he just wasn't at school anymore. And neither was Bushy. I have always said that somebody needed to contact her because she seemed to know whatever was going on. And he was really concerned about what she had said to me. So she must have known something. You mean she had to have known there was foul play? Yes, I reckon. Former students of Cromer High put me in touch with their old friend, Linda McCarthy, who talked to Miss Bush in their new hometown of Port Macquarie, two decades after the events of 1982. Leslie Bush told Linda that the events at Cromer High with Chris Dawson had seriously affected her health. She'd had some sort of breakdown. And she said that um, the police had never, ever come to her, near her, asked, questioned her, and that, um, that Lynette had come up to the school and actually said, what's going on with my husband and these 16-year-old girls? She used plural, girls, so I always wondered about that. Linda told me that a short time after Miss Bush had mentioned to her this conversation, there were newspaper headlines about Chris Dawson as the main suspect in his wife's murder, and police were appealing for public help. So I rang her and I said, have you seen the paper? And she said, no, but I said, well, they asked, the police are asking if you... If anyone has the information, then you should go and tell them what you know and everything. But she she said, oh, no, no, I won't. She didn't seem like she wanted to do any of that. She said they never asked me years ago, so she didn't want to do it. Looking back, it must have been, yeah, really terrible for her. I wish I'd gotten more of a chance to talk to her about it. When I tried to find Miss Bush, 
whose alarm was immediately obvious to Michelle Walsh in early 1982, I discovered that the popular sports teacher had passed away. Leslie, um, in, in every school in which she taught, um, was a very highly regarded teacher. She was, she was very passionate. Her brother, Peter Bush, a prominent respected businessman and company chair, said Leslie had a rare form of meningitis. She would have been quite horrified um, that, you know, that sort of thing was going on. I, I would, you know, I would find it very difficult to think that she could confront, you know, somebody like Dawson. In an earlier episode, Hilton Mace, who was Cromer High's deputy principal, told me that he had tried to respond to what he called unsubstantiated rumours about Chris Dawson and Joanne Curtis. And Hilton said that when he challenged Chris and told him to stop seeing Joanne in his office with the door closed, the former Newtown Jets rugby league star told Hilton, you've got a dirty mind. Hilton told me that if he had a stronger case, he would have taken it further. From the way I felt all my life, I'm sure I would have done something about it. I then asked Hilton about his recollections of early 1982. When uh, Chris Dawson's wife disappeared, uh, you know, it was would have been uh, after, I was a little bit suspicious quite early that uh, uh, he could have been involved in her disappearance. And that wasn't just my feeling, it was the feeling of quite a few members of staff. And when you say quite early, do you mean within months of Lynn Dawson disappearing in 1982? I don't think it was too long before I start to feel that there was something amiss uh, in uh, her disappearance. I found Hilton's comments surprising. He's acknowledging that he suspected foul play against a young mother, the wife of a schoolteacher who was suspected of being in a relationship with a girl from Cromer High a girl who was now living with that school teacher. And do you think that any of the teachers who were suspicious early in the piece would have gone to the police after Lynn disappeared to say, look, this doesn't add up, we don't think she would have left her daughters, there could be foul play here? I didn't feel it was the duty of any teacher to make an investigation or any statement in regard to... Uh, what was going on in that regard. I thought, well, that's the police's job and uh, I feel strongly that now and I was told the police were very, very slack in following up uh, Lynn's disappearance. Do you recall who told you that the original investigation was very poor? Yes, the detective uh, uh, Loon and... Uh, Damien Loon? Yeah, yeah. Uh, he, he said that it wouldn't have happened that way today, that they just treated it as a missing person. When you look back on it, do you think that anything could have or should have been done differently by teachers or yourself? No, I don't think so. I mean, uh, the dangers of, you know, uh, reporting someone just on hearsay are enormous, uh, unless you have... Absolutely irrefutable evidence. It's dangerous. But Hilton believes that Chris Dawson and his twin brother were being looked after by the Education Department and the police in the 1980s. 
Hilton recalls Chris Dawson leaving Cromer High in 1982 and being quietly transferred to another public high school on the Northern Beaches, but Hilton has no memory of being told exactly why that move happened. 36 years later, it reeks of a cover-up, an attempt by bureaucrats above Hilton's pay grade to try to keep a lid on a scandal by just shifting Cromer High's problem away from that school's community of parents, teachers and students. It had become common knowledge in Cromer High that Chris's wife was gone and his girlfriend was in the house. Public servants in the New South Wales Department of Education, who were responsible for the safety of students and the ridding from the system of rogue teachers, facilitated this convenient move by an obvious offender. There was protection for Chris Dawson and his brother because his brother did have uh, a bad reputation and other teachers that work with Paul Dawson uh, uh, were very unhappy about their behaviour with girls. You've told me that some teachers you've spoken to felt fearful. Can you elaborate on that? Oh, well, uh, I played badminton or I did been playing for 30 or more years uh, with a couple of teachers, we ex-teachers, but uh, one of them in particular said that he would never uh, say a word against the Dawson boys because his words were that he might end up under a slab of concrete. You heard Kay recount at the start of this episode her conversation in 2007 with Chris and Paul Dawson and what she said was their disclosure to her that Lynn had joined a commune or cult in the Blue Mountains in Sydney's far west. Kay wants me to understand something else she says she observed. Well, one of the things that happens, I think, if you, if you interview people is that their pupils are a, a dead giveaway. So if, if someone is actually telling you something that they're, they're lying about or they're exaggerating it, the pupils can actually get a lot larger. And the other thing is that they, they can quite often start fidgeting with their hands without knowing it. So, so it is this, uh, it's like a human reaction, I guess, to what we would describe as an animal being caught in a spotlight. And people, when they're, they're lying together or they're, or they're making up a story, will always look at one another for the reassurance of, you know, back me up on this one, this is what I'm saying. So, and, and I've, you know, I've seen a lot of that over the years, certainly from, from interviewing. Then again, you know, some people grab their ear or itch their nose, or, but it's only the eyes. The eyes react. Is that when you were speaking to Chris and Paul Dawson that time? Absolutely. Uh, certainly more from, more from Paul. Paul getting Chris's attention, looking at him, and because they were sitting so close, Chris then looked at Paul, and then Paul said, yeah, that's right. That's right, she went to the Blue Mountains. Look, I have no hesitation in saying they had agreed on a story. So he told you, and Paul confirmed, that she'd definitely gone to a cult in the Blue Mountains. Correct. I have thought, well, how did he know that? How did he know she'd gone to a cult? He didn't say to me he'd had contact with her. He just said she had gone to a cult in the Blue Mountains and... Paul confirmed it, but there was there was the look of is that okay to say? And then Paul said, Paul, you know, agreed with what Chris had said, and and that that has always stuck with me as well. 
Joanne Curtis is talking to the police detective, Damien Loon, about those weird early days of January 1982, right after Lynn had vanished. Looking back on the, on the past now, would, yep. would it appear to you that um, it's unusual that Lynn, went, that Lynn disappeared? Yeah. And also bearing in mind the fact that she has two children at the time and when she disappeared, two young children. Mm. Would you... Would you think that at this stage that would, that's unusual? Yes. No, well, knowing how I feel for my child and think, you know, expecting that she felt the same for hers, I certainly wouldn't abandon my child. I, I thought it was very strange. But then, you know, maybe I didn't know her as well as I thought I did. All right. What did, uh, what did Kristen say to the children in relation to Lynn not being at home anymore? They were told, I suppose, that their, their mother just left. I don't know what reason they were given, or whether they were given any, because they were two and four at the time. Do you find it odd that as soon as his wife went missing, he returned, you, you went into the family home? He wanted that all along. And, you know, because he made the phone calls about property and, and that sort of thing. I, I just remember she was there one minute, um, he told me she was gone and she wasn't coming back and that was that was the, the, the uh, sort of key to me. Okay, now I was in type thing. I, I guess he was looking for a way for me to be in without him losing. He wanted his kids, he wanted the house. When you moved into the house after Lynn was reported missing, yeah. how, did, how did you feel yourself? Knowing that... His wife has been reported missing. I didn't know his wife. I don't think I knew his wife had been... I, I just didn't know what was going on. I mean, I, I, all I know was she'd gone. He said, right from where we'd go, she wasn't coming back. Lynn's gone, she's not coming back. That's, that's just what he said. And so I believed him. That's what he thought. He, he told me that she, she, she'd um, taken two bags and he dropped it down at Monavale and she was going shopping to return some clothes or something which apparently she did quite often and that was the last he saw of her. I think her mother might have rung and I, 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 I can't remember. I don't know I don't know what happened to her. I mean one day she was there a lot of stuff went on and then she was gone and she never I never heard from her. You know as far as I know the children never heard from her. As far as I know, her mother and her brother and, you know. When you moved in, how did his, how did, his, did Christopher's demeanour change any? And when I say that, was he a happier? Was he a happier person? Or was he a distressed person? No, I don't think he was distressed. I think he was, you know, he had what he wanted. That was what he wanted. That was his, his goal was to have me and have, the children and have the house and have no limb. You know, I, I, he was ecstatic. In the next episode of The Teacher's Pet, Chris Dawson acts quickly to remove traces of Lynn from his life. He hastily seeks a divorce and property settlement and he proposes marriage to Joanne at Bayview. The Teacher's Pet is a podcast series investigated and written by me, Hedley Thomas. The series is produced by Slade Gibson and me, with original music and audio production by Slade Gibson Audio. 
and additional audio editing by Zachary Wommel. Anyone with information about Lynn Dawson's disappearance can send it in confidentially or contact me through the website, theteacherspet.com.au. This podcast series is brought to you by The Australian and proudly hosted by Wooshka. Visit theteacherspet.com.au for additional documentary material as well as credits for the full team behind this multi-part production. Hi, I'm Headley Thomas, and I want to introduce you to The Australian's latest investigative podcast, The Lighthouse, from my good friend and colleague, David Murray. David's done a fantastic job. He's been working closely with people in the iconic community of Byron Bay to try to find out what happened to a young Belgian backpacker, Theo Hayes. Theo is travelling around Australia and making new friends at places like Uluru in this vast country's red centre, But then in May 2019, he disappeared from beautiful Byron Bay. David's podcast, The Lighthouse, has already generated a lot of interest in Theo's intriguing story and how he vanished. And I know there's a lot more information to come as the series unfolds. Byron Bay is home to the Hollywood star Chris Hemsworth. It's a haven for writers, poets, musicians and actors. And the good people of this laid-back surfing community are pulling out all stops to help find Theo. Please listen to David Murray's podcast. It's called The Lighthouse. Search for The Lighthouse in your podcast app.